Well, good morning. Welcome. The passage for this morning comes out of the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. So if you flip open about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, we're going to look at Matthew 9, starting in verse 9 and going through to verse 13. Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13. And while you're turning there, let's go back to the Lord and ask that He bless this time of Bible study. I would ask that as I pray for us, that you pray for me as I deliver God's Word for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before You as a broken people, stuck in our own ways, And in need of you, desperate need of your word, Father. And so I pray right now that you would speak to us. Open up our hearts and our minds. And help us to hear what it is that you have for us this morning. Use your Holy Spirit to convict us of places where we need our lives to change. To come more in line with what you ask of us, Father. I pray that you would make us sensitive to the moving of your Spirit. And bring us to a place where we're willing to take steps to make change. I pray that you would empty me of myself, Father, and speak through me. Because if my words are not from you, they have no value. And so I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us. And now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my strength, and my Redeemer. Amen. Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner, At Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Spur-of-the-moment decisions are always interesting things. I don't know if you're anything like me, but as someone approaches you with some sort of a spur-of-the-moment decision, as happened to me a few times when I was in college, maybe seeing if I wanted to take a road trip with somebody for the weekend or Um, asking me what my summer plans were and seeing if I wanted to go halfway across the country and spend the summer working somewhere else. You sort of see two roads sort of unfold before you. You think about the path that you're on and the place where you are and the way that your life is going and it's very safe and secure and you sort of have an idea of what's going on and, and you sort of know what to expect. But then on the other side, 
You have a sense of sort of adventure, maybe the unknown and the sense of, well, what could happen? What what would happen if I did these things? If I, in this moment, decide to make this decision and go this way? And for me, mostly it worked out. I had some great times with friends up and down the eastern seaboard. Had a wonderful summer in Colorado. Met some lifelong friends. But then there's also been plenty of movies and stories that we've all heard and maybe experiences in our own life where we've made a spur-of-the-moment decision and it was a terrible decision and it didn't work out. But spur-of-the-moment decisions, they come on you quickly and they force you into action. And they make you decide at that point, at that place in time, what are you going to do? In our passage this morning, Matthew faces one of these decisions when Jesus comes to him. And Matthew himself is telling this story, and he's sort of telling it in a, in a third-party way. But he's talking about Jesus coming to him. And so this is the story of Jesus calling of Matthew to become one of his disciples. And there's Matthew sitting in his tax collector booth. Now, to understand why this is significant, because we... You know, we would think of somebody that's a tax collector, works for the IRS, maybe not the highest of, you know, opinion that we hold of them. But in those days, in the time of Jesus, a tax collector was the lowest of the low of the low of the low of the low of the low. I mean, you could not get any worse. Think about the worst person that you can think of, the lowest low life, the dirtiest scumbag, and go about three levels below that. And you're probably approaching somewhat to what people thought about tax collectors in that day. These were people that were Jewish. So they were part of the people that were conquered by the Romans. And yet they had come to a place where they had sold out and decided that it was in their best interest to now work for the Roman government. So they're sold out against their own people. And they would go around and they would tax the the Jewish people. And so here is somebody that is supposed to be against the Romans, that is working for the Romans. They have the threat of the Roman Empire behind them. So if you don't do what they say, they could point you out and say, this person is not doing what I say. This person is not paying their taxes. The Roman guards would come, grab you, throw you in prison. That wasn't a nice place, nice thing to do. So people weren't real fond of that. But then there was the other matter the actual collecting of the taxes. There was a certain amount that they needed to collect, but you weren't privy to what that was. The tax collector knew, the Roman government knew, but nobody else knew. So the tax collector could come to you, and if the amount was $5, the tax collector could say, you owe me $10. And you had no way of knowing that he really was only supposed to take $5 from you. And so he would take that other amount of money and pad his pockets. And this was the way that it went, sort of like the sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood. Just a dirty scoundrel, somebody that's taking advantage of their own people, somebody that is completely disliked, unloved, outcast from society, but yet also someone that's very stable, someone that has a vested interest in the continuation of the Roman Empire, Someone that has probably worked hard to build up their business to get to that place. Someone that has probably made a fair amount of money, maybe even wealthy. 
But they've done so cheating, lying, and scamming their way to do that. So this is where we find Matthew sitting in his little tax collector's booth as Jesus comes to him. And Jesus looks at him and he says, follow me. Two words, follow me. Now, it's interesting because Matthew, as we've said, has no reason to upset the status quo. He has zero incentive to walk away. When you look at some of the other disciples, they're fishermen, they're in a family business, they walk away. Yes, they have to leave some of their family behind. They leave their business behind. But it's something that they could go back to. It wasn't like they had to make a complete and total change, turn their back on their business and everything. I mean, if you walk away from the Roman government and tell them you're not going to collect their taxes anymore, it wasn't like you could come back three days later and say, oh, I was just kidding about that. Changed my mind. I'm back. I'm ready to collect my taxes again. Funny joke. No, it didn't work like that. I mean, this, this is it. And yet, the Bible gives us no indication that there was any hesitation on Matthew's part. It says, follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And it's not like Matthew misunderstood what Jesus was saying. It wasn't like Matthew was under the impression that Jesus was like, hey, why don't you come over here? I got something, I got something to show you. You know, why don't you follow me over here? Or like sometimes when I call my dogs, trying to get them to move from one area of the house to the other so I can actually get something done, like vacuuming the floor without them underfoot, in the way, messing everything up. No, this is not. In the original language, there is an implied call to learning, to discipleship, and to an apprenticeship. Matthew understood when Jesus came to him and said, follow me. That this implied something bigger, something greater, something beyond what he was used to. And he stands up and follows him, turning his back on all the wealth, safety, and security that he had in his job. But he doesn't turn his back on his life. Because the very next verse, we find ourselves at a party at Matthew's house. So while he may have turned his back on his job, he still seems to have friends. Because it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So there's Matthew, and he's having this party, and there's all these undesirables in attendance there, which probably, as Matthew would have been an outcast, were probably the people that Matthew would have been led to hang out with. Because if you are a fine, upstanding, respected member of society, you wouldn't want to be hanging out with someone that collects the taxes and is a terrible person. So there's not really very many social options for a tax collector at that point. So he just sort of hung out with other tax collectors and people that were considered sinners. So it's not like Matthew decided, oh, well, I'm just going to follow Jesus, but I'm turning my back on everything. No, all of these people show up for a party probably to say, hey, here's Jesus. This is the guy that I am leaving all of this stuff behind for to follow him. 
And maybe he wanted to introduce other people to Jesus. I don't know. But yet there he is at Matthew's house, hanging out, having a party with all these undesirables. And then enter our good friends, the Pharisees. And they come and they see that he's there. He's with all these undesirables. And they start to make these sort of underhanded comments. And I love the fact that rather than go to Jesus and say this directly to Jesus, they come sort of in the back way, come around the side. And rather than, you know, directly take on Jesus, they decide, well, it probably would be better for us if we say some things to the disciples. So they go to the disciples and they say, so disciples, why is it that Jesus insists on hanging out with these tax collectors and these sinners. And you can almost hear the, uh, the derision, the, the hatred, the dismissal of all of these people in the Pharisees' voices. They do not like these people that Jesus is hanging out with. So they come and they say, to the disciples, why is Jesus hanging out with these people? And the Bible doesn't tell us if the disciples give a response. But I like to think that Jesus, either overhearing them or, well, because he's Jesus, knew what was coming, immediately stands up and begins to answer the charge of the Pharisees. And he does so in three different ways, with three different phrases he first says to them it is not a it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick you sort of get the feeling the pharisees maybe think about this for a second but the implication here is that jesus has not come for people who don't need him jesus came To save those who are sick and dying in their sin. He has the cure for sin and death. And rather than waste it on people that don't think that they need it, people that think they're okay, people that aren't worried about it, Jesus says, these are the people that are sick. These are the people that need the cure that I have, so I will instead give it to them. There's people all around us in the world today that are sick. People that are stuck in their sin. People that are dying every day because they haven't either accepted the cure or heard about the cure. And we, as the church, as believers, the body of Christ, people who claim to be followers of Christ, hold the cure. We have it there. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we care enough about these people around us that are sick and dying to share the cure with them? Jesus did. Do we? So the first phrase is Jesus explains, I have come not for the healthy, but for the sick. 
The second phrase that he uses is he then looks at the Pharisees and he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So Jesus sort of, he's poking the Pharisees a little bit. He pokes them a little bit with the first one. But with this second jab, I mean, he puts it in deep on these guys. And the reason is the Pharisees would know exactly what this phrase meant and where it came from. They prided themselves on having memorized the scriptures, of knowing what exactly was written in the Old Testament. And Jesus here is actually quoting from the Old Testament. If you want to flip over to Hosea 6, which will be back in the Old Testament, Hosea 6, and we'll pick up in verse 4 through verse 7. Now, Hosea is an interesting book. If you've ever read through it, I suspect that you found parts of it uncomfortable. There are pieces of it that are sort of gross. But it's fascinating. And it's basically broken up into two parts. The first part is the story of a wayward wife. The second part is the story of a wayward people. As you may recall, at the beginning of the book of Hosea, God tells Hosea the prophet, the man of God, to go and marry the prostitute Gomer. Now this is a weird thing, to say the least. Probably would get you kicked out of your local synagogue or church. Not really going to elevate your social standing by marrying a prostitute. And yet this is what Hosea does. He obeys God and does this. And it turns out about exactly as you would expect it would. Gomer, the prostitute, cheats on him. She leaves him. She disappears. She gets herself sold into slavery. All kinds of horrible and horrendous things happen. And Hosea is faithful through all of it. He spends his time, his energy, and his money rescuing her, buying her back, going and finding her, bringing her home to the children that she has bore him. Spends all of this time and energy investing his life in rescuing her. And God called Hosea to do this because he wanted the people of Israel to have a real and vivid picture in their minds of what exactly they were doing to him. The people of Israel had done the same thing. God had chosen them, had brought him in, and yet there they were, chasing after all these different things, rejecting him, choosing other gods instead of him, worshiping idols, getting themselves sold into slavery. Time after time after time, God keeps bringing them back. And so this part of Hosea outlines part of God's charge against the people of Israel. Hosea 6, starting in verse 4. What can I do with you, Ephraim? That's just another phrase or another word for Israel. What can I do with you, Judah? The kingdom at this point was divided into two, Israel and Judah. So he's speaking to the collective people of God, God's chosen people. What can I do with you, Ephraim? 
What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgment flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. God is explaining to the Israelites that no matter how many times they come to church, no matter how much money they put in the offering plate, no matter how much Christian music they listen to in their cars, if their hearts are not completely sold out to God, it does not matter. And one of the ways that God here is measuring how the Israelites' hearts are devoted to Him is how they act towards other people. He desires mercy, serving their fellow man. Now, if we flip back even one more passage, it's explained for us even more and in even more detail. Isaiah 1. Again, God's judgment on the people. And this gives us a very clear picture of why it is that God has allowed the Israelites to end up captives, slaves, because they have not obeyed Him. And He lays out for us to see what exactly the charges that He is bringing against them and what it is that they have not been doing. And He explicitly tells it to them. Isaiah 1, starting in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Let's pause right here for a second. I think we probably are all familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the place where Lot, Abraham's cousin, lived, and it was known as a place that was the most evil debaucherous and terrible place on earth. It was so bad that God said that he would save the city if they could find five righteous people in this giant twin cities and they couldn't find five. And so God told Lot and his family to get out and he rained down fire and brimstone destroying these two cities. That's not really a ringing endorsement for what you've been doing. And yet here is God calling the people of Israel, Sodom and Gomorrah. Unpause. Picking up in verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals, I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take off your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient and will eat the best, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is very clear in listing out the sins of the people. The sins of the Israelites was not neglecting to come to the temple. Was not neglecting the things that God had commanded them as far as all of the festivals, all of the liturgical calendar things, the church activities. That was not what God was concerned about. God was concerned with their hearts. God was concerned with the way they were acting towards the people that were around them. And he tells us in verse 17, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. He's very clear what he wanted from his people. So back to Matthew. The Pharisees knew the scriptures. And when Jesus tells them to go and learn what this means, he's not telling them to go memorize the scripture because they probably had this memorized already. No, he's telling them to stop letting the words of God be meaningless words that wouldn't penetrate their hard hearts. Instead, Jesus is telling them, go and do this. Put this into practice. Practice mercy. So that's the second part. Jesus tells them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then the third part, he says, and he takes that stick that he's been poking the Pharisees with, and he just digs it in one last time. And he says, For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees considered themselves as righteous as you could get. They knew all the laws and they kept them to the point they would give a tithe out of their spices. They were as anal and as small about these things as you could get. They considered themselves totally and completely righteous. And once again, Jesus is coming to them and he's saying, look, I'm not coming to save people that think they can do it on their own. I'm not coming to save people that think they've got it all together and have no need for me. No, I've come to save people that recognize that when they take control of their life, they put it in the ditch every single time. They mess it up and they do a better job of messing it up than anybody else can. Those are the people that Jesus 
telling the Pharisees that he has come to seek and to save. Anybody that thinks that they are above Jesus' redemption is not going to be open to hearing about it. So how does this bear fruit in our lives? What does this mean for us today? I'm glad you asked. Jesus is calling you to follow him. It's that simple. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've never come to the place where you've recognized and realized that you are a sinner, that you cannot do things on your own, that you cannot get into heaven on your own, then Jesus is simply calling you today to take that step. He is calling you to come and accept Him, to tell Him that you have messed up, that you need Him, that you cannot do things without Him. It's that simple. Jesus is asking you to follow Him. But if you have taken that step and you consider yourself a believer, well, I've got good news for you too. Jesus is asking you to follow him. Jesus wants you to follow him radically. He wants you to follow him sacrificially. And he wants you to follow him wholeheartedly. Jesus wants you to follow him radically. Look at the people that we have been talking about. The the command that is not just in these three passages that we've looked at this morning, but is throughout the Bible. As you read through the Bible, you look both in the Old Testament and the New. The command goes out over and over and over for the same people that God wants us to reach out to. And that's not really a popular notion and idea in our society today. And so God may be calling you to follow him in a way that isn't that safe. He may be calling you to follow him in a way that isn't that popular, that may not win you very many friends, that may not increase your social status, that may make people look funny at you, but yet he's calling you to follow him radically, to follow him in a way that changes the people that you come in contact with and hopefully changes yourself as well. Jesus is calling you to move beyond yourself. And this is going to look different for each and every one of us. We have to come to a place where we're willing to say, yes, I will follow him. Jesus is asking you to follow him sacrificially. When we think about the widows and the orphans and the oppressed, we still have those today. We have women who have lost their husbands. We have children that don't have parents. And we have people that are in slavery. But more than anything, I think the point there is that these are people that in the Old Testament and in Bible times were marginalized and did not have rights. When we think about those people today, we think about illegal aliens. We think about the homeless. 
AIDS patients, drug addicts, sex addicts, people that we really don't want to dirty our hands getting involved with. And yet these are the exact people that Jesus is telling us that we need to go seek out and serve to show them mercy, to help them. If we want to follow Jesus, these are the people that we need to have in our lives. And if you're anything like me, there are not very many people like this in your life. And that is a hard thing to read through a scripture like this and recognize. But yet, Jesus is calling us to follow him sacrificially, to give of our time, of our energy, of our efforts, to give up some of the things that are our hobbies, maybe the things that we think are so important. Because if you want to be a true follower of Jesus, you have to make sacrifices. And that doesn't involve just coming here on a Sunday morning. That doesn't involve just putting some money in the offering plate. It involves actually getting dirty, getting involved with your life, making an investment with your person. Jesus is calling us to follow him sacrificially. And he's also calling us to follow him wholeheartedly. If you're anything like me, this isn't really something that's going to get you all fired up to go out there and find some undesirables to go hang out with. The change has to come not from the outside in, but from the inside out. If you are a follower of Jesus, God has given you the Holy Spirit to work in you to change your attitudes and your desires to mirror that of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is alive and working in each and every one of us that has claimed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the only possible way that we can follow Jesus in a radical, sacrificial, and wholehearted manner is if we allow and cultivate the Holy Spirit in our lives to do this in us. Seek the Holy Spirit's moving in your heart. Ask God where it is that He wants you to follow Him. Seek out other people that are like-minded. People that also want to follow Jesus in this manner. Spend time with them. Go serve together. There are plenty of opportunities. Plenty of ways where you can get involved. It's not for lack of opportunity that we as the church in America have missed this. It's for lack of trying and a hardening of our hearts. And Jesus is telling us to follow Him. Passion is contagious. And I guarantee you, if you become passionate about the things that Jesus is passionate about, it will change your life and it will begin to change the life of those around you. In Revelation, the Bible tells us that we will have the opportunity in heaven to spend time with people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. We might as well get started now and get some practice in. I read this week 
on the blog Stuff Christians Like by John Acuff about a welcome that was in a bulletin from a church. From Our Lady of Lourdes Catholic Community, this is the welcome that they give when you open their bulletin. We extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, gay, filthy rich, dirt poor, yo no habla ingles. We extend a special welcome to those who are crying newborns, skinny as a rail, or could afford to lose a few pounds. We welcome you if you can sing like Andrea Bocelli or like our pastor who can't carry a note in a bucket. You're welcome here if you're just browsing, just woke up, or just got out of jail. We don't care if you're more Catholic than the Pope or haven't been in church since little Joey's baptism. We extend a special welcome to those who are over 60 but not yet grown up and to teenagers who are growing up too fast. We welcome soccer moms, NASCAR dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. We welcome those who are in recovery or still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems or if you're down in the dumps or if you don't like organized religion. We've been there too. If you blew all your offering money at the dog track, you're welcome here. We offer a special welcome to those who think the earth is flat, work too hard, don't work, can't spell, or because grandma is in town and wanted to go to church. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, or both. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now, had religion shoved down your throat as a kid, or got lost in traffic and wound up here by mistake. We welcome tourists, seekers, and doubters, bleeding hearts, and you. God welcomes each and every one of us. And if we want to call ourselves followers of God, we need to begin welcoming these people into our lives as well. Jesus is calling you to follow him. What's your answer? Heavenly Father, we confess that we have failed you in so many ways. We have not followed you closely. We have not followed you radically. We have not followed you sacrificially wholeheartedly. And yet you still love us. And Father, I thank you for that. And I pray right now that you would take this message and implant it in each one of our hearts. Bring us to a place where we understand that the eternal reward that we can gain from following you is so much better than anything temporary here on earth that we could ever hope to desire. Change our lives, Father. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.